This is episode 166, and today's guest is Kenneth E. Hartman. He's the author of the book Mother California, a story of redemption behind bars. He has an incredible story. He accidentally killed a man when he was 19. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He is out, and today we hear his story and more than just his prison story. We hear his life life after prison. It's an incredible episode. I'm so very grateful for Mr. Hartman for doing the episode. And before we get into that, just a few, or Q, let's do a few things um, before we get into the episode. First of all, if you like my new theme music, I don't know if you've noticed, but the whole podcast has a new look, a new sound. That song is by Ken Vandermark. It's from the album Utility Hitter. And the song is called Turn Your Head. It is uh, ASCAP 21st Mobile. So there you go. Mr. Vandermark himself has been on the podcast twice. Incredible episodes. A really great guy to talk to. I'm a little full on Mexican food, so if I'm, <laughs> if I'm breathing a little heavily in this intro, it is because I just ate the largest steak and shrimp burrito on the face of the planet. Um, real quick, um, please become a Patreon subscriber. Go to patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer. Uh, I'm posting all episodes up on the Patreon early. For five bucks, you get access to everything. And uh, I also have um, episodes that are exclusive to the Patreon. Right now, my first exclusive episode is up. It's with uh, Second City producer and producer of the show SCTV is up there. Um, it's an incredible episode. He talks about the inception of SCTV. He tells some great stories about John Candy and Chevy Chase at a party that I'm not going to tell you here because why would I give it away? Five bucks, you get access to that. I also do a commentary There's a, about my history with Andrew Alexander, the Second City. Um, it's a really, I think, a pretty goddamn good commentary. On the Patreon, I will be doing all the episodes will go up there first. There will also be exclusive episodes. I have some exclusive episodes coming up with David Koechner and George Went. Um, they're a little bit more lighter than some of the political stuff that goes on in conversations with Matt Dwyer. Also, there will always I'm going to be doing commentary on new episodes. I'm also going to go through the archives and do commentary on some of the old episodes. So please become a subscriber to that. $5 gets you access to photos, videos, blogs, a dollar a month gets you, uh, you can ask questions and I'll mention your name. Uh, Bill Ham and Gerald Shorey and Gregory Bevington, I hope I didn't mispronounce his last name, all new Patreon subscribers and I'm very grateful for that. That's a huge, huge thing. I'm also started an Instagram page where it's called Dwyer's with Con- uh, Conversations with Dwyer so you can see photos and whatnot. Um, and check out my website, thematdwyer.com. Hopefully up soon, I'm work- reworking it, but there'll be merch and links to everything, so you won't have to listen to these long, detailed intros. <clears throat> and uh, also, just a quick plug to two other podcasts, uh, Hunk with Mike Bridenstine. If you like my podcast, I really think you'll like Hunk as well. And uh, Kilgallen's Pub by my friend Joe Kilgallen. They're both friends of mine. 
Uh, Joe Kilgallen's podcast is a comedy podcast. He talks to a lot of comedians. Uh, Joe is one of the funniest comedians out there. Check out his YouTube page, too. Discover these people. Uh, and real quick, before I get into the episode, I want to thank Dustin Marshall, who um, I started this podcast with on Feral Audio, and we have been communicating and rebooting it, and he's, with I honestly, without his insight and knowledge of podcasting and where to blah, 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 I would have been lost, and I probably still would be trying to figure out how to get these episodes up and into the world. So many thanks to Dustin Marshall. It means a lot. And uh, also, if you can't, by the way, if you just want to go back to the Venmo thing, not the Venmo, the Patreon. Um, I spend a lot of money to get this podcast out there. I travel, uh, I drive, I buy new equipment. So that means a lot to me, helps keep the show going. If you just want to make a donation, you could also just donate to Matt Dwyer Dwyer at Venmo. And uh, hopefully I'll find a way to shorten these <laughs> intros where I tell you things like that and I could just talk about the big fat burritos I've eaten um, prior to the show. That being said, um, I got some great episodes lined up. Uh, Greg Deal, who is an indigenous artist and activist. I have Amy Dresner, who wrote My Fair Junkie about her sex and drug addiction. Um, tomorrow, I'm interviewing Luis Rodriguez, who is a... a was a part of the Chicano movement, was a gangbanger, and he's also now an author and a poet. I am, cannot wait to meet him. Um, so, lots of good stuff ahead. Forgive my wheezing when I breathe. <laughs> I have a huge burrito in me. Um, now, let's get into Kenneth E. Hartman. Uh, this is an incredible story and a very powerful episode and sometimes very funny. So, please, enjoy the podcast. <laughs> discover writing in prison or did that since we were talking about them as well just jump right in um well so it's kind of an odd story i guess at some level but um my girlfriend at the time actually she was my wife at the time by then while i was in prison she she used to tell me all the time you know like you write you write beautiful letters you should be a writer and I had, it was really not something I'd ever really taken seriously, but I testified in a federal trial against the prison where I was housed and they retaliated against me and I ended up in the hole. Long story short, I get out of the hole and I basically have nothing to do. I don't have a job. I'm on a different facility. And I saw a flyer for an arts and corrections program taught by a man named David Scott Milton. Oh, it was a writing program, and I thought, eh, something to do. So I started, I started going to that, and the first thing I wrote was essentially an apology to the city of Long Beach for the crime that I committed that put me in prison, and it was published. And that sort of that was in 1990. I would have been 92, 93, right around then, and um, and then I've been writing ever since. Did did it ever? Were you ever curious about it prior to that or before prison? Or no, literature? not really. No. no. I mean, I read a lot. I, I love to read. And I had read, I had read you know, hundreds of books. You know, in, in one of the few uh, upsides of being in, in 
incarcerated is there's plenty of time to read. You know, <laughs> you know, that's fine in the silver lining. Well, you know, I well, yeah, I feel like when you're you know when you're in the bottom of a well, you got to say, well, there's something to drink down here, so that's you know, it's better than being in a desert, I guess. But yeah, you know, what did like prisoners do? They exchange books and be like, hey, you got to read this one and. Yeah, actually, you know, I uh, uh, years later, as I was sort of pursuing my writing career from inside prison, I did a series of columns for the Huffington Post, and one of them was called "The Gangs of Readers in Prison," and uh, I sort of, you know, just sort of thought I would make a play on that. And when I really, when I first came to prison, where you know, televisions were less prevalent, um, and reading was like really something uh, people took seriously, and I can remember. The older guys sort of, you know, well, you need to read this book or you need to read that book. And then and then sort of like the people who read sort of more serious literature, you know, the classics and, you know, political things and stuff like that. We all would exchange books all the time and, you know, everybody would build up their little libraries and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we took reading pretty seriously. That's uh, is that is there preconceived notions when people hear that you were in jail, like what the culture is in jail? Because most people just have shitty movies to draw from. <laughs> right, I, I agree. And, and you know, it's, I tell this to, every time I'm asked this question, I will give you the, the best example of how completely inaccurate the movies are. Uh, so in every prison movie, there's the scene where the, the guy, the star, the protagonist shows up at the new prison and everybody's yelling and screaming at him and saying, hey, punk, you know, and all that kind of, that never ever happens in any prison or jail I have ever been in, and I did 40 years inside prisons and jails. 40 years. It's just years. totally inaccurate, a complete falsehood. I have no idea how this became like the trope of all prison and jail movies in America. Um, yeah, so that's just uh, not accurate. That's not accurate. The par- so, so, so the reality, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no. so, so the reality is, in answer to your question, I, I got off on my own interesting story. I hope. Yes, <laughs> it's always interesting to me, but you know, I don't know if anybody else finds it interesting. But um, the, the answer to your question is, uh, yeah, prison is not what people think it is. Um, you know, it's it is in fact a dangerous and violent place. But it's, you know, it's kind of like if you watch cop shows, you would assume that cops' lives are filled with, you know, violent chases and shootouts. And instead, it's mostly sitting around drinking coffee and eating donuts, right? right. I mean, that's reality. And the cops would tell you that. Well, prison is mostly boring. Like many other things like that, it's mostly boring. It's interspersed with moments of, you know, terror and, you know, and fear and, and moments of, you know, sadness and, you know, and, and melancholy. But mostly it's boring. And... You were 19 when you went in? I was 19 years old when I went into prison, yeah. And that's a pretty... I mean, you're not a very developed mentally person for that to... No. No, and, and you know, in fact, recently, uh, there's a bill right now in the state legislature that would raise, I think, the age up to 20 or 21 for people to be sentenced as adults. You know, and, and brain science, you know, would, would say that, you know, men in particular... Uh, their brains don't fully develop until they're in their mid to late 20s. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I did some pretty... I made a lot of mistakes mm. <laughs> in my 20s. I've, right. I'm amazed I, I have legs and can mm. move. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And is that... Because I'm sure you're asked about what landed you in prison a lot, and I'm sure... sure. Do you... What, when people ask that, what is your mm-hmm. thought? Because you've probably been asked a thousand times. It's got to get... Tiresome, 
Um, you know, I guess, I guess my answer is A, you know, uh, when I was 19 years old, I, I killed a man named Thomas Allen Fellows in a drunken fistfight. That's what happened. Um, it, what I did was wrong. Um, I, you know, I didn't actually intend to kill Mr. Fellows, but I did kill him. Uh, I feel tremendous remorse for that. I will for the rest of my life. Um, I'm not tired of answering the question. It's not, it's not an unreasonable thing for people to ask, in my opinion. Um, I hope, however, that, you know, I'm not forever will be judged by that action that occurred, you know, on February 24th, 1980, you know, for the rest of my life. And, and that's, that's the problem with prison and the way our system is set up. It's kind of, you are your worst moments ever. Right. And, you know, and, and I, as you know, I'm, I personally believe uh, that every human being is capable of being better than their worst moments. I right. believe that. Yes, and that's ultimately why I'm here to talk to you because I sure. reform. It, it, an interesting thing, though, and I've noticed from with Wayne, and I've had a couple other friends who've been in prison. The, the you mentioned the exact date, and a lot of people who've done time. It, it, what is the why is that that it's such a specific? I mean, obviously, it's a it's a major part of your life, right? But it seems like it's. Uh, it's like almost repeated for yourself or what is the what is the meaning to those th that date it's a good question i don't think i've ever been asked that specific question so that's a good that's a new question well, um, i try I, well I <laughs> and i appreciate it um you know i i guess you know obviously it's it is in the list of most important dates in my life you know obviously and it had a profound impact on my life you know what what i what I did was a terrible thing, you know, and it had a lasting impact on my life. It had a lasting impact, obviously, on Mr. Fellow's life, but his life ended on that night. Um, you know, and it, it forever changed the course of my existence, you know. Um, and, you know, it's right up there with, you know, December 28, 1960, when I was born, you know, or December 26, 1995, when my daughter was born, you know. Right. So, so all these dates are December 20th, 2017 when I got out of prison. You know, I mean, these, these are all, you know, these dates all, you know, and you're, these are dates you're never going to forget. You got you know? released two days after Christmas? I got released five days before Christmas. Oh, December, I, I misheard. Yeah, December 20th, 2017. Oh, that's I was, good. I was released from prison five days before Christmas, yeah. How crazy is that to have your first Christmas with family in 40 years? Well, you know, it was very, it's, it was a very interesting thing. So in my case, you know, I'm completely estranged from all of my family of origin. Uh, my, both of my parents and two of my siblings actually have died. I have one sibling that I have not had any contact with for, you know, going for 40 years. Um, so my, I had my first Christmas really, you know, in a transition house with a bunch of people I'd never met before, <laughs> <laughs> who also had all just recently been released from prison. Uh, and, you know, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you get out of prison, it's not like you just, um, yeah, you know, it's like you just go home. You know, I mean, that's another sort of one of those, I guess, uh, the misperceptions of reality. Uh, people get it from film mostly. Sure. Because you always think of the, the guy stepping out and there's nobody around or a car pulls up. Yeah. None of that. No, actually, in my so in my case, uh, I, a friend of mine came to pick me up, and uh, it was right here up in Lancaster at the prison down the street. Um, uh, she, they, were, I, they drive drive you out in a van, and um, 
those of us who have rides who've come to pick us up or get let out of the van right at the front gate, everyone else is driven to the bus station or the train station where they're put on a bus or a train out of town. Um, I had a friend named Linda there who I've uh, been friends with for you know 30 plus years. Uh, she picked me up, drove me uh, down to uh, Southern California into the into the city, down the hill as they say from up here. <laughs> and uh, you know I went to the beach at Zuma, you know because when you get out of prison you have to go to the beach, stand in the ocean. Um, it's a California thing. You right. know, I, I, obviously, people get out of prison in Kansas probably don't do that. Yeah, but, I'm from uh, Chicago. I think people just go get a hot dog. When they well, <laughs> right? I mean, every probably every area has its sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And and it and it, at least for prisoners of my generation and my sort of you know uh, social group, like we all go to the we all go to the beach. There's always a picture of a guy standing in the water at the beach the day he got out of prison. So okay. I did that, and then I went to the halfway house. And you were you were supposed to be you were life. I had life without the possibility of parole. I, I was supposed to die in prison. How did that? I know we're. I, well, I was going to try to go linear here, but we were jumping up. But it's yeah. the way the conversation. Sure. But I'm, uh, how did that come about? That mm. that you were suddenly being well, not suddenly. I'm sure it was. But what was the process? Well, um, so the the uh, I guess the. I'm trying to figure out the best way to lay this story out. So, um, in in the in the sort of 2010s, in the early 2010s, middle 2010s, I guess, uh, people had been sort of asking Governor Brown to think about uh, commuting people with life without the parole, life without parole sentences. Um, in 2017, uh, he uh, had some people that they were considering doing that. The, the Department of Corrections interviewed a bunch of people and, you know, did a whole lot of other, you know, decision-making behind somewhere. And at the end of it, uh, Governor Brown commuted three people's sentences, and I was one of them. Holy that's like- and that had not happened in, like, 25 years for anyone sentenced as an adult uh, to life without parole. Three out of how many were there? Up- There's about 5,500 people in prison in California serving life without the possibility of parole. Yeah, so it's like a, I mean, it was like almost like this kind of like winning the lottery sort of thing, you know. And they came to interview me in January, the initial interview of 2017. Um, and I was like, well, you know, what, what, what do you think the odds of this are? And they were like, well, we have no idea, you know, they're just thinking about it. I was like, oh, okay. Um, the Saturday before Easter, uh, you know, Governor Brown was, had, was a Catholic, you know, is a Catholic, and, you know, had, it was a, I think there was a religious connection. Um, what we call Holy Saturday, I was called up to the office at the prison where I was at, and a woman named Christine told me on the phone that as of today, you are no longer serving life without the possibility of parole. You have life with parole. And December 20th of that year, I was standing outside the gate of the prison. So in less than one year, I went from you'll never get out of prison, you're going to die in prison, you're too dangerous to ever be out in society, to driving down to Zuma to get sand in the water. How did you feel the moment you realized you were getting out of prison? You know, it's... So, and and maybe this is just a function of the reality of serving life without the possibility of parole. I assumed for a very long time that I would die in prison. I had come to terms with that. Um, and it was a surrender of sort of dreams and hopes and stuff. And 
until I was standing on the other side of that gate, I didn't really believe I was actually getting out. I kind of had this sort of sneaking suspicion that at the last moment someone was going to go, wait a minute, we've made a mistake. You know, I mean, that, I mean, that really, that's kind of how it felt. And I, you know, so how did it feel? It felt weird and awkward and hard to explain and um, a little bit guilt of like, why me and not the other 5,000 men they, and women, you know? Um, do they start treating you differently? How did, how does the... No, nobody started treating me differently. I mean, you know, I had been involved, you know, I was an activist inside prison. I did, uh, you know, a lot of political stuff. I, you know, wrote about prison. You know, I, I was not like a, you know, I, I, I was an advocate and an, an oppositional figure to them for many, many years. Um, had lots and lots of friends, you know, and I, you know, I think most people were kind of like me. They were like, is this really happening? This can't really be happening. So I think a lot of it was just, you know, we were all kind of like, is this really happening? I mean, they say it's happening, but is it really actually happening, you know? And and I think the, the you know, the the day I walked out, people were still probably going, is he, is, are they going to really let him go? I mean, is that really what's happening, you know? And uh, so, I mean, it had a kind of magical realism sort of quality to it, like, um, and, you know, and then, like I say, I mean, as I was driving down the street, uh, sitting in Linda's car, we got about, um, you know, I didn't really say much. I was kind of like probably a little bit overwhelmed at some level. And at some point we were probably like maybe mile down the road or something. She kind of turned and said, you know, the weird thing is, I go, what's that? She goes, this seems really normal. And I went, <laughs> yeah, it kind of does actually. And I mean, and that's kind of been my, that's kind of been my experience, you know, is that I haven't, it's not been that hard really. And, and I'm, and I have a lot of advantages, you know, I mean, I have a huge, I, I don't have family, but I have many, many, many friends and many people stepped up to help me. You know, I'm a middle-aged white guy, you know, I mean, the, the cops don't know who I am, you know, I mean, I've never been pulled over by a cop since I got out, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm just like an average, you know, old white guy walking by, <laughs> you know, they don't pay any attention to me. <laughs> so, I mean, I have a lot of advantages sort of built in, you know, and uh, so, I mean, it's been mostly been fairly, uh, you know, not as dramatic as I assumed it would be, but you know, it's not to say it hasn't been hard. It has been hard at you know many levels, but you know, just from the outside, it's like eh, you know, I got I was working two weeks after I got out. You know, I'm you know I'm I'm doing okay. I live in Santa Monica. You know, I have a great girlfriend. I mean, you know, it's like life isn't so bad. That's you know? all pretty good stuff. I yeah. think so. I'm, I live <laughs> a 15 minute walk from the beach, man. Oh. <laughs> It's amazing. So you could go stand there every day. I could. It, that's a long walk, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> Chicago. We walk. Right. Um, when was the? Is there a defining moment from when you went from being a prisoner to becoming an activist? Um. Hmm, yeah, there kind of is. I think um, it it started with the the woman I met and fell in love with when I was young. And as the years went on, you know, uh, you know, they tend to treat visitors pretty poorly. And, and in that, I sort of became an advocate to try to get visiting to be better, you know. And, you know, like a lot of people, you know, it's like, you know, nobody cares about a disease until their kid has it. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're out, you know, to change the world, to fix that disease, which is perfectly understandable. I don't, I'm not saying that in a mocking right. way. I mean, it's just reality. When something impacts you directly... Um, and then that sort of became 
more and more. And then what, what really happened was in 1995, my daughter was born. Um, and I, and I can remember thinking to myself that, um, you know, I did not want her to be ashamed of me. And, and I felt like I have to become the best man I can be. And I felt like, and still feel that the, the biggest and best contribution I can make to society is I know like the inside problems of one of the worst things in the history of the world, in particularly in this country, which is the system of mass incarceration. So that's what I'm, that's the focus of my activism and advocacy. Right. How did it feel to have a daughter? I can't imagine the mixed emotion of having a daughter, because I have one as well, but then to be in prison mm. and not, be able to hold that daughter and tell her that you love her every day. I can't imagine. It was terrible. I mean, it, you know, it's like, I remember years ago before my daughter, um, a guy had met a girl and, you know, they fell in love. And, you know, back in those days, there were conjugal visits for lifers, which is obviously how my daughter came about. And I remember he said to me, he said, you know, I wasn't really punished until I fell in love with somebody. Wow. Now I feel punished, you know, uh, and yeah, it was it was a gut wrenching experience in many ways. Um, you know, I I was I was lucky, you know, I I was able to be in places where I could use the phone a lot. I mean, my daughter and I talked on the phone every single day for years. Um, my daughter would tell you that uh, you know I was a really good dad, even though I wasn't physically present. I was a good dad, you know. Um, I don't know if she's saying that to make me feel good, but, you know, I, I think I tried my best. Um, I wrote her all the time. I talked to her on the phone all the time. I saw her in the visiting room regularly, like, you know, every weekend for many, many years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a terrible thing. And I, and I you know, I, in, in, my, in my book, Mother California, it's a point in there where I talk about you know, someday my daughter is going to say, what were you thinking? Why did you have a kid while you were serving life without parole? And I always assumed that conversation would happen, and I would still be in prison serving life without parole. So the conversation happened, but I wasn't in prison. <laughs> so it sort of took the sting out of it a little bit. So, you know, so. <laughs> um, when that letter got published, it, was that the catalyst to, that was definitely the catalyst to you pursuing writing, or did is, was that like a, hey, I got something here yeah i mean that really you know that kind of um you know the first thing was sort of an like a letter of apology literally to my family to mr fellows you know uh to the city of long beach you know for the harm i had caused um but it it also opened my eyes to hey i can apparently people like how i write and and i started writing op-eds and opinion pieces about what was wrong with the prison system how did the book come about because which is i read uh, because wayne kramer uh when i started working with him he suggested it and mm. i told everybody <laughs> i i mean it's an incredible book it's gripping mm. and at times i mean i was tense right. it's it's an incredible journey thank you um well, the story of that is also something I find kind of funny maybe not everybody else will but, <laughs> uh so i you know when you're a writer, um, 
and I suppose most writers probably experience this if you're published very much, you often will get letters from people that sometimes are kind of cranks. You know, they'll just write you a letter and say all kinds of things and, you know, you should do this and why don't you do that? And, you know, and I would always answer every letter I ever got and say, thank you for writing. You know, So I got a letter from a man named James Atlas um, said, hey, have you thought about writing a memoir? And I was like, eh, not really. You know, I, at that time, I wasn't actually writing that much. I had published a couple of articles. He'd read one of them in a magazine called Topic Magazine. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm really busy. I got a lot of other things going on. Thank, no thanks. Thanks for writing me. So about every six months for probably about two years, I got a letter from this guy, James Atlas, saying, hey, have you thought about uh, writing a memoir? <laughs> and I didn't take it too seriously until I was watching a program on PBS called The Great American Novel, and they had a bunch of expert uh, people in the writing world, and one of them was a guy in a bow tie named James Atlas. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is the guy that's been writing me, and then I contacted my friend David Milton, who had been my writing teacher, and I said, you know, I've been getting these letters from this guy named James Atlas. And he wrote me back and he said, you don't know who James Atlas is, do you? And, I, and I'm, you know, and he said, he's actually one of the most famous people in the literary world in New York. He's like a famous biographer. He has his own publishing company. He said, you really should write a memoir with him. So I wrote him and said, hey, you know, I think I'd like to write a memoir. <laughs> you know. The offer still was there. The offer was still there. And uh, over a period of about two years, you know, back and forth, he was a really, really rough editor. Uh, it made me a much better writer. And, uh, and, you know, I luckily after I got out, I was able to, you know, be in New York with him. We spent a day together and had a lot of time to talk. He since passed away, unfortunately. It's a sad, untimely death. But, um, he, you know, he changed my life. I mean, that book obviously had a massive impact in many, many ways. You know, it, it brought me to the attention of a lot of people. And, it, you know, and it, um, it's been like a huge thing for me and you know it's still people still buy it still sells and you know and people want me to come to colleges and speak and you know because I've read your book and I'm always like and I and I have this odd experience of people walking up and sitting down talking to me who seem to strangely know many things about my life and I've never met them before and it's because they've read my book <laughs> it's a very weird thing it's a it's an odd thing people say so what happened with and I'm, and I'm in my mind my first thought is like how the hell do they know that you know and then I have to go oh they read my book yeah so yeah I mean it's odd because, in uh, I guess, in uh, over the past few years, I have thought about you often, and it's, it's, I mean, it, which is a strange. And then it's just strange. And yeah. there's thousands of people who probably think about you quite yeah. often. Yeah, I, I get letters from people. Uh, I got, I just got an email from a guy in, um, I think it's Massachusetts or something, who was assigned my book in a class and read my book and sent me an email to say how much my book. Uh, impacted him and you know and I got to send him send him a thing back and I still to this day I respond to every single person who reaches out to me who's read my book I feel I should do that. that's the least I can do you know did do you have letters from prisoners who've read it who said it has affected them in a positive manner you know not really and and it's sort of one of those things you know it's the truth of the matter is my book is not a famous book I mean it's not like it sold bajillion copies or anything um and you know I I, I know people who've read it inside, but I haven't actually got letters from people inside who've read my book that I can think of. Um, I may have over the years, possibly, but I mean, it came out in 2008, um, so it's possible, but I don't, re I don't recall any off the top of my head. When you started trying to make changes within your, uh, within your own prison, did you, were th was the prison, were they responsive or was that a fight? 
Yeah, that was, <laughs> no, they were not responsive. Or, or maybe I should say, yes, they were responsive and not in a good way. You know, oh, really? Uh, no, I mean, I, I look, I. Uh, so in my thirty-eight years of prison, I was in the hole eleven times. Uh, two of those times, it was for something I did wrong. And nine of those times, it was because of political activities, whether it was writing letters to the governor's office or organizing prisoners to... You get put in the hole for writing the governor? Uh, I did, sure. Yeah, because I wrote the governor about what they were doing wrong, and they didn't like that. (laughs) Shockingly, right? I mean, who would imagine that? You know, I mean, I can remember uh, a captain uh, who was the facility captain were on the facility that I lived, he called me and another guy into his office, and he said, he said, if another letter comes off of this yard that doesn't go through my office, I'm putting you guys in the hole. And I said, you should start writing the paperwork up to put me in the hole now, because I'm <laughs> writing a letter about this meeting. You're the literary Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> a little bit. You know, I mean, I guess there's something to that. You know, I mean, I don't want to be... Cool Hand Luke was way more handsome than me, to be fair. You know, and he That's probably subjective. could eat more eggs, too. But, you right. know, I mean, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I'm... No, I, I, was, I was committed to, you know, trying to work for prison reform. I still am. Uh, and, um, yeah, and, and obviously I'm trying to reform their business. They don't like that. That's an, you said business. Cause that sure. is how common are, well, uh, are the, what are they? I'm blanking on what they're called. Cause there's state prisons run by the right, state. The private prisons. Private. Thank you. Um, how common is that in the state of California? Oh, it's all, almost none. I mean, it's a tiny, t- and, and when I say their business, what, what I mean by that is, um, so there are private prison companies, and, and they are horrible atrocities that you know, like literally set out to make profit off of human beings' misery and suffering. It's a terrible thing. Uh, California, to their credit, has mostly stopped doing business with uh, private prison companies, although they still do business in the reentry field with uh, several of the big private prison companies. But that's you know, it's a separate issue. We could go on and on about it. I'm lobbying as hard as I can to have them stop doing business with any private business or private prison companies for anything. That's just, you know, something I'm working on since I got out. But, but when I say business, I mean, the, the, the prison system is owned by the state. It's funded by the taxpayers. But the people, you know, people who work there, that's their business. I mean, they're in the corrections business or whatever you want to call it. Um, and in California, you know, public prisons don't make money. They spend the money. You know, they spend money like 75% of the budget of the CDCR goes to pay for staff and staff-related stuff. And, you know, that's the, that's the nature of it. It's a, it's a money-spending operation. You know, it, it makes money in the sense of it, it supports businesses and it supports the people who work there. You know, it's a, it's a money-spending operation, though. So if there were layoffs at a prison, I would probably say, like, hey, crime's going down. <laughs> well, you know, oddly enough, crime's been going down for a really long time. And prison goes up. And prison is now has a larger budget than it did when, when there were more people in prison than there are now. Why is that? <sighs> well, that's a really giant, complicated right. question. But, I mean, I guess probably um, the costs associated with prison have gone up, and that's whether it's how much the staff costs or how much medical care costs or... You know, prisoners are older. They have, you know, prisoners have served longer periods of time than they did in the past. So there's a lot of old men and women in prison who have no business being in prison. And if you're going to keep them in prison, 
you know, you got to pay for their medical care. You got to pay to keep them alive, you know, and just like you would out here. But everything in prison costs 10 times as much because it's got to get through the electric fences and all the security levels. And, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I, I, I think that's what it boils down to. It's just the costs to run prison have just grown exorbitantly. And it's just a, it, from a societal perspective, it doesn't make any sense. Was because I was thinking about when politicians say like tough on crime and Bill Clinton he had the three strikes. Bill Clinton did sign the uh, Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act, and he also signed the the '94 Omnibus Crime Bill, which sort of was the beginning of you know sort of the giant explosion of mass incarceration in this country. But I mean, he joins a long list of. Republicans and Democrats all who got on the bandwagon since Nixon and the, you know, the war on crime, which was, you know, fundamentally a war on uh, people of color and poor people. Um, and it's been going on for a long, long time. And, it, and you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I think, so the issue here is, I mean, you know, we can go, all, let's go all the way back to the early 1800s when de Tocqueville, visits this country from the government of France to say, so how does a democracy really work? We've, we're a democracy. Let's go to the United States because they've been around longer than us. They must know how to do it. And he traveled around this country and in one of his most famous writings, uh, and of course he's speaking about white men, to clarify this, he said, I've never seen any place with more unfettered liberty you know, people do what they want and they join associations and it's, like, it's an amazing thing. But I've also never seen worse despotism than in prisons in the United States. This is in the 1830s or 1820s maybe. But I mean, this is like, so the United States has a long history of having horrible prisons. It still has horrible prisons. And the big difference now is that, you know, in the, there was a rise in violent crime in the 80s and early 90s. It happened throughout the Western world. It didn't just happen here. Apparently, I don't know how old you are, but my generation went insane. Apparently, and you know, <laughs> I was I participated in this insanity myself. So you know, but uh, you know, it, this happened all over. It happened in Europe. It happened in Canada and Australia. Happened in the whole Western world, and everywhere crime went up. The first reaction was, "Well, we've got to lock more people up." It's sort of one of those gut things. Well, people are committing more crimes. We've got to lock more people up. The difference is. Pretty much everywhere else relatively quickly said, well, this is a pretty stupid idea because how many people go to prison has virtually nothing to do with how many crimes are committed. It's a, it's a long, and any criminologist will explain this. It's a, but the bottom line is a very tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people who commit crime actually end up in prison. In the United States, you know, uh, politicians, you know, right-wing folks, you know, sort of went, ooh, this is, we can really crack down on the people we don't like. We will criminalize them. We will just build more and more and more prisons. And, you know, in that omnibus crime bill, you know, there were things like, well, the federal government will give you more money if you keep people in prison longer. And, we'll, and if you build more prisons, we'll, we'll give you more money for that. And we'll give more money for police. And we'll give more money for courts. You know, so it, it kind of became a big gravy train. And, and what every other rational industrialized country on earth said, okay, stupid idea, let's do something different. We did the opposite. We said, this is a great idea. Let's incarcerate as many people as possible. So we get to the point now where, you know, 
four and a half percent of the world's population, close to a quarter of the prisoners in the world are in this country. You know, we have the highest incarceration rate in the history of the world. Um, you know, it's like, and and it's it. We've had like a little tiny downturn over the past few years, but in reality, we're still by far the highest incarcerator in the history of the world. And is the base of this at racism? Would you say? Yes. Clearly, I mean, I would, I would, I would say yes, it's racism, and yes, it's also uh, classism as well. I mean, uh, it, there's no question that uh, people of color have been grossly, disproportionately impacted by this, but it, it's also fair to say that people, poor people, have also been grossly, disproportionately impacted by this. In the United States, poor people are predominantly people of color. That's the reason, you know, it, it's it has it has impacted them worse. And but but it's no question that racism, systemic racism, you know, white supremacy, you know, all of the bad, horrible things that are in the history of our country have had a massive impact on this, without a doubt. Why do you think people talk about incarceration and you don't hear the word reform? Uh, you know, it's really complicated. I mean, it, so there's probably several reasons, and one of one of them is so you have like you have like all these strands of people approaching this problem. You have, a, you have a strand of people who, uh, who believe that the only solution is to abolish prisons, which, you know, I'm personally, I, I would describe myself as a reformer with abolitionist goals. Um, you know, I, I, which, I mean, maybe that's just, maybe I'm just being, you know, I'm going to play both sides of the fence here. But from my perspective, there are more than 2 million men and women in prison in the United States. And while I would like to see an entirely different type of justice system that's based on healing and um, medical treatment and compassion and, and you know, and <clears throat> finding ways to restore people whose lives have been damaged on both sides of the equation, uh, the, the, the victims and survivors of crime and the perpetrators of crime. Um, but I know that those two million people are in prison right now and, and they need to be, they need the programs and the kind of things that will help them heal and become better than their worst moments and be able to get out of prison as fast as possible. So uh, I want to see a, a, a reality where prison as we know it has ceased to exist. Uh, I don't know when that happens. I hope it happens next week. But, you know, in the interim, I want to see what's happening currently become better than it is. So that's kind of where I stand. If we had better mental health in this country, do you think that would have a great impact on? Oh, God. It, it, I mean, <laughs> Was that a dumb question? Uh, well, I mean, no. There are no dumb questions. Uh, Matt, there are no dumb questions. <laughs> Somebody said, told me that once. Ken, there's no dumb questions. As I asked, a really dumb question. But, no, I mean, uh, it, so... What, how many people in prison have mental health problems? Well, and, I mean, addiction. I mean, our friend Wayne Kramer, was. he says that's the reason he was in prison mm-hmm. is he was trying to sure. fill his drug habit, not sure. commit crime. Right. Well, I mean, look, I mean, it, people people go to prison because they're they're poor. They're trying to, you know, find ways to support themselves. They're angry. They've been treated bad in their life, and they're, and they're filled with rage and unhappiness. That probably would describe me. Um, you know, there are, there's a, all these reasons, but clearly for half maybe maybe more of the people in prison i mean it, it's there's mental health issues and you know and again i mean these these are problems that you know throwing someone in a concrete box and treating them like a piece of crap for 25 years and then saying okay go out and you know and sin no more is a really stupid idea right i mean you know it's like you don't you don't get healing by harming people 
right? I mean, and again, these are all these things are just like not understood, I guess, or something. Um, but it, it gets it gets back to the history of this country, which likes punishment and suffering. Somehow or other, in this country in particular, and 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 in the Anglo countries in general, you know, like England has the worst prisons in Europe. You know, um, so I mean, the Anglo countries in general, there's this idea, and I mean, is it a Protestant thing? I'm not sure where it comes from, but <laughs> right. there's this idea that somehow suffering is ennobling, and suffering will like cleanse you and make you better. So it, so I think that's why you know, um, the, 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 I tell this sort of jokey thing all the time. You know, the first prison in America was in the 1770s in or 1790s in Connecticut in an abandoned copper mine. The first prison riot in America was in the 1790s in Connecticut in an abandoned <laughs> copper mine. You know, it's like, so basically our first prison, we started abusing people. I mean, it's just like, it's sort of this idea that if you, if you, if you make people suffer, somehow something good will come of that. And it has mutated into this, like, we're just going to be cruel because that's what we should do. It's prison. Prison's supposed to make people be unhappy, right? I mean, that's what we, I think people generally believe yeah. that. You're supposed to be. You're supposed to be sad and mad and unhappy because you're in prison, you asshole. You know, I mean, it's like you know, I mean, and 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 when you have a conversation with people and you say, you do you think anything good will come of that? I think they they often will say, no. But so what? You know, you're in prison. Is I in, never thought of it until you said this, but about it being Protestant, I was like, or puritanical is like that. That is probably is has that. Thought been already out there, or is that? Oh yeah, I mean, in the in That's sort of insane in the, to me in the in the people who have sort of analyzed like why do we have the kind of prison system and the kind of criminal justice system that we have, you know, there's no question that there's this streak of sort of punishment in our, you know, our Judeo-Christian Protestant kind right. of roots. It's effed up. It, clearly, <laughs> no question about it. And then and then you sort of like, and you can say this is the base paint, and then the colors you add into it are racism, you know, white supremacy, fear of, you know, the people that we just had enslaved are now not enslaved, and we got to do something to keep them under control, because they probably don't like us, you know, which can't imagine why, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, and then and then add into that just you know the fear of immigrants and the fear of you know the, all the other fears, and then just sort of a broadly we want to keep the poor people under control because you know if if the ninety percent of Americans just wake up one day and go why the hell do the ten percent have everything and we got nothing so you know what f them you know what I, I mean? don't know why that this hasn't. Like you, especially in th this era that we are in, and other times when people are poor, they turn the turn the white people against the brown people, and then mm -hmm. it's that's oh, they've been doing that since it's since the oldest the, trick since, in the world. Oh, oh, it's going on forever. And I'm like, if why can't we get past this? Because it's I feel like we're just going in circles now. Yeah, no, I I, I agree completely, and and I, you know I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I know that uh, it, one of the hardest things to do inside prison is to get in California prisons. I don't know if it's true everywhere in the world. I've only been in California prisons. But uh, it's very hard to get the different races to work together. You know, I mean, there's just sort of a natural, you know, I'm, I'm with mine and you're, you're with yours. And, you know, I mean, and, and I, I spent many, many years doing everything I could possibly think of to 
sort of lessen that and get us to work together. I mean, I in my book, you know, I describe, you know, I mean, I, I helped stand up a program where one of the fundamental tenets of it was no racist stuff, no separation. We're all going to be working together, and and you know, uh, the, the prison system doesn't like that. You, I know, right? Wow. It's, oh my gosh! <laughs> it's just it it's, speaks to that they're in the mindset. It's they don't want people to get better. They don't want people to change. You know, I, I would. I will say this. I mean, I, I want to be. I want to say this because I feel like it's important to say this. So, so first and foremost, there are many people who work in prison who are decent human beings who are not evil. They're not sitting out to harm people. Um, they go to work every day. It's a really, really terrible job, and it takes horrific, uh, you know, toll on the people who do it. They have terrible. Their lifespan is shorter than the average American. They have terrible, you know, divorce, you know, alcoholism, drug abuse, all of these terrible things. Um, but it, what it is, it's a system. The system itself is a terrible system, and it harms everyone who comes in contact with it. And you know, uh, I, I, you know, I think it's a fair thing to say, and I've read this described by more than one, you know, expert. You know, I mean, anyone who has served time in prison for any length of time has PTSD when they get out, and I think anyone who works in there has PTSD too. I mean, I think it's just a, it's just a terrible system, and 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 it, and this is why the abolitionists have a good. It's why you know they're right. I mean, that the system as we have it is just terrible. The idea that you're going to cause people pain and suffering and somehow something good is going to come out of that is insanity. And it's also just a horrible thing. I mean, it's, just, it's a terrible thing for human beings. Did you find when you first got into prison that you grew angrier until you... <clears throat> I would <clears throat> Excuse me. I would imagine... Well, you speak to it. I, don't, I was going to... Um, so I came in angry, you know, like a lot of, you know, young men, you know, I was 19 years old. I, you know, uh, I, I had not had a particularly pleasant life and, you know, it doesn't excuse anything I did, but, you know, that's the, a reality. Um, but, you know, I think for me, um, you know, I was, I was drugged, you know, I stayed high. The first 10 years right. I was in, I was basically high you know, to one degree or another as often as I could possibly be. And it's how I, what I had done since I was 13 years old. If I'm not mistaken, didn't you say that in the book that you found it just as easy, if not easier, to get drugs in prison? Oh, yeah, it's, you can get anything you want in prison. You know, it's just, an, that's reality. And, and I'm pretty sure that's every prison in the world, actually, it's like that. I mean, you know, it, it, anywhere there's human beings, you know, but... <laughs> To be real about it, right? You know, the guy, the guy's guarding the border. You know, it's like I'm sure nothing gets by them. You know, but uh, you know, but but for me, you know, um, you know what what changed my life was love. You know, I had never felt loved in my life. You know, that's a reality. And as as you know, trite a thing as that may sound, it it that just destroyed me as a human being. It really did. It wiped me out. I did not feel loved by my parents. Um, my parents were not evil people. They were broken people who had had terrible lives themselves. And, you know, it took me a long time to rea realize all those things, and I no longer have any negative feelings toward my parents. You know, God bless them, and, you know, I hope they're in a better place. But, you know, I was very angry when I was a boy, and, and I took it out on everyone around me. You know, I really did. And I was a bully, and I was a just a really rotten son of a bitch. I was to many, many people in my life. Um, 
but I, but I covered all that with drugs and drinking and all that. And uh, on December 12th of 1989, I stopped getting high and drinking. And I did that because at that time, I was getting conjugal visits from a beautiful woman that I was in love with. And they put a memo on the wall and said, in 30 days, we're going to begin random urinalysis. And if you're dirty or you refuse to take the test, you lose your visits. And I said to the guy standing next to me, I'll be in the first random group because I was a drug dealer. And I was in the first random group. But that day, I stopped getting high. I decided, did I want to be high or did I want love? And I wanted love. And, you know, probably about 90 days later, after being sober for a few months, um, I realized sort of what I had done to my life, to other people's lives. And, you know, and at, right at that moment, I sort of said, I've got to change and I've got to become better than this, you know. And that was sort of, that was the first sort of, and it's not like the next day I was like, oh, I'm perfect now, everything's great. <laughs> I didn't become Mother Teresa. I was still an asshole. I was just a little bit less of an asshole. And I worked for many, many years to be, you know, much less of an asshole, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, that I, I was in pain and I and I was suffering and I didn't know how to deal with it and uh, and I dealt with it like you know millions of other people do. You know, I drank and used drugs and unfortunately, unlike most people, I was violent. You know, and then I and that you know, and it took me a very long time to unwind all of those things and become the person I am today, which I believe is you know. If I'm an asshole, I'm a small asshole now. So you don't seem remotely like an asshole. <laughs> I hope not. You know, I mean, I, I certainly strive to not be one. I assure you. Um, I mean, we all struggle. Uh, I do. <laughs> I, I do too. I, you know, I, I do. T- I, you know, I, I, I go to twelve-step uh, meetings to this day, and um, you know, and and every day I get up in the morning and I try to remember what I should be grateful for, and you know, I mean, I'm. I'm free. I have love in my life. I, you know, I'm, I'm not hungry. I'm not, you know, I'm not being abused. You know, um, my yeah. life is not that bad. We are conditioned in this society, I think, to want too much, if that makes it. I, I, you know, we want fame. We want rich wealth. Um, and it took me a long time to, to, it took love and my wife and my daughter to make me realize, you know what? I always, it's corny, but I say, like, we have food in the fridge. We have love in the house. We're we're doing okay. <laughs> there's there's something about um, you know fathers and daughters. You know, um, my daughter tamed me more than any other influence. It's in my amazing, life. isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's it's it is the most uh, it is the most profound thing. It's such a pure kind of love. I you know I can't look at any situation in life without seeing it through her. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't ever think I was going to be a father, and I didn't. I really didn't. So I <laughs> yeah. was like, and I mean, the truth of the matter is, uh, my now former wife, you know, uh, but I mean, for five years, she said, "I want to have a baby," and I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" You know, I'm going to die in prison. I mean, this is, would be a terrible idea. You know, like, and I was terrified of the idea, and you know, it's like. And I'm and I'm sure you understand everything I'm just going to say, but it's like I remember every moment, you know, when um, you know when my daughter would, you know, tell me how much she loved me, and it just oh, it just melted me. Gets me every time, right? It, it melted me. It really did, and and it and it humanized me, you know. And it's like, um, you know, 
it's it's a it's it's the most overwhelming thing, you know, and 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 I'm so grateful. And we have a great relationship. We we literally talk every single day on the phone. Uh, I've seen her many times since I got out. She lives up in San Francisco. Um, we are extremely close. We've done many things together. Um, I'm, you know, so grateful. That seems like a pretty great place to end. <laughs> well, and and I, but I will also say one last thing. Yes, because I don't want to not say this. Right, it's important, but. You know, I also have been really, really blessed and lucky to have met a really wonderful woman um, literally just like a couple of months before I got out. Uh, really? Yeah, I just met her just sort of in a happenstance, interesting little story. But um, we've been, I, she's the only person I've been seeing since I've been out. We live together. Uh, she's a really wonderful person. And I would be very remiss if I did not. You know, she has certainly helped uh, help, help me transition into the world, and uh, she is a person of a lot of patience, which is a really good thing for me. <laughs> uh, do you think that the prison situation will get better in this country? Just as one last. Um, so my answer to your question is yes, and I say that because I have to believe that. You know, just like I have to believe that. Everyone in prison is capable of being better than their worst moments. And maybe not all of them will do that, but they're all capable of it. Like every human being is capable of becoming better than their worst self and their worst moments. Uh, I believe that this society is capable of being better than its worst moments. And, you know, I, I believe, you know, I, I look at my daughter and her generation. And, you know, my daughter... My daughter has friends of every kind of persuasion you can think of sexual racial you know what i mean just everything and for her it's like a complete non issue and I, and i say to myself you know that's just one generation massive change yeah. so is it going to get completely fixed in my lifetime i hope it does but i'm not going to hold my breath on that is it going to be fixed i believe it will i i believe i believe this country will be better um you know, and I and I think there will come a time when, whatever system we're using for criminal justice, it's based on healing and it's based on compassion and it's based on accountability, but done in a way that is helpful and helps people become better, and not you know not inflict pain and suffering with some misguided idea that you know it's going to cleanse your soul or something. So yes, it'll get better. Where can people find your work? Uh, you have a website? I, I, <laughs> I do have a website. I think the website says I'm still in prison. That's something I really need to work on. <laughs> I didn't notice that today. Maybe that's good for the marketing of the book. I don't know. I, maybe. I don't know. It's a good question. But, uh, you know, I, I will have a website at some point that says that I'm out of prison. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my book, Mother California, is available on Amazon. Um, and uh, and the email address that's attached to my book is accurate, and anyone who wants to reach out to me and talk to me or whatever, and I do I do speaking engagements at colleges and other organizations. I do a lot of advocacy work. Uh, I was in Sacramento last Monday, and I'm, I also do victim offender dialogue facilitation. So I'm involved in a lot of different things. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for asking me, man. No.
Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please do me a favor. Review the show. Tell your friends about it. Please write a review. Give it five stars. Tell everybody about it. Tweet about it. Um, It helps me immensely. Thank you very much. Keep on listening.